All right, you guys, so question 96 in the Baptist Catechism. Let me grab my Bible, actually, too. I should bring that up. Question 90, 96, and like last week, we're considering what, at least it's helpful for me to think of them this way, at least, what are the elements of a Christian worship service? Now, specifically, tonight we're dealing with two of the four mentioned ones that uh, we were introduced to back in question 93. That's when we started learning about these different categories. These are elements of what constitute a Christian worship service, not simply a Baptist worship service or a, you know, a Presbyterian one, but just simply a Christian worship service. And so there's, when we think of how it is that we're supposed to worship, there are things that are called elements and they contrast with things that are called circumstances. Elements are those essential um, means or those essential actions that need to take place at a service to make it actually a Christian worship service. So the elements then, like, so we're talking about these four main ones of the word, um, the reading of the word, and especially the preaching of the word, baptism, when it's needed, the Lord's Supper, and prayer. Uh, circumstances would be things like, well, you know, I'm gonna, we're going to sing out of hymnals or we're going to use PowerPoint to use. That's a circumstance, but there's still singing. Uh, how long the sermon is, that's a circumstance. Should we have the lights on or the lights off? That's a circumstance. But these elements of, of worshiping the Lord through his word and the sacraments and prayer, those are essential to a Christian Worship service, and like Ross was mentioning earlier, we're going to close out the study on the catechism thinking about these things. Now, one of the things that we have been introduced to is the similarity or, and also the dissimilarity between what we call ordinances and sacraments. Uh, both the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith and the Westminster Confession of Faith say that there are only two sacraments. Or the, the Baptist Confession of Faith actually doesn't use the word sacrament. It uses the word ordinance. Pastor Nick mentioned this a few weeks ago. And one of the other things that he also pointed out was that there are a number of different ordinances. And so, for example, I mean, all four of these things, the word, the, the reading of it, the preaching of it, baptism, the Lord's Supper, and prayer, they're all ordinances. And there are other things that we could also call an ordinance as well. Nevertheless, it's interesting to see that the Westminster Confession of Faith and the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith um, also say that there are these two sp- specific ones that stand out in, um, in, in a grouping and kind of different than the others. And so chapter 28 in the London Baptist, Baptist, Baptist Confession of Faith says this on baptism in the Lord's Supper. It says, Baptism in the Lord's Supper are ordinances of positive and sovereign institution. They are appointed by the Lord Jesus, the only lawgiver, and are to be continued in his church to the end of the age. These holy appointments are to be administered only by those who are qualified and called to administer them according to the commission of Christ. So they're, they're positive. What he means by that, and not that they like have a good attitude or something like that, but that he's speaking of the reality that these are ordinances or, or laws within the new covenant that are specific to the new covenant. And when, the new, and when this era uh, is done and Christ consummates his kingdom, you're not going to see people being baptized anymore. You're not going to see people taking the Lord's Supper anymore as well, too, because there are these positive laws of the new covenant, similar to how um, circumcision was a positive law in the old covenant. No longer are Christians, the people of God, 
In other words, are they to have to, they must be circumcised in order to be identified as people of God. Uh, that f- circumcision of the flesh was something that was a positive law in the Old Covenant. Now, the Westminster Confession of Faith says this. This is chapter 27, article 4. It says, There be only two sacraments ordained by Christ our Lord in the gospel. That is to say, baptism and the supper of the Lord, neither of which may, may be dispensed by any, but by a minister of the word lawfully ordained. And so one of the things that's been that struck me, at least, when we've been talking about this, is a little confusing, thinking of sacraments and ordinances. Are they exactly the same thing, or they, could they be a little bit different? I know that, I think we, we've, I've heard before that they're just the same thing, and there's an element to where that's true. But it's a little confusing when thinking that there's more than two ordinances, and yet both the Westminster and the Baptist historic confessions highlight these two specifically, baptism and the Lord's Supper. So one way that you can maybe think about this is that, you know, all sacraments are ordinances. And an ordinance, the way that I think it's the best to think about this, when we say, like, think of even how the word sounds, an ordinance. That means it's something that's been ordained by Christ or something that's been ordained by God for us to participate in. And so all sacraments are ordinances, but not all ordinances are properly called sacraments. So, for example, we don't call the preaching of the word necessarily a sacrament, though it is a means of grace. These are all ordinary and outward means of grace. But we're not specifically calling the preaching word, preach word a sacrament or prayer a sacrament either. We're reserving the, the capacity to call just baptism in the Lord's Supper a sacrament. And the, the, the Presbyterians in the Westminster Confession handle that well. On chapter 27, again, in the Westminster, they say this in Article 1. Sacraments are holy signs and seals of the covenant of grace. Now, we would differ with them about seals. I, don't, I wouldn't want to say that they are seals of the covenant of grace. The seal of the covenant of grace is the Holy Spirit. But nevertheless, they have a different hermeneutic, and we don't have to get into those weeds today. But, but they're emphasizing the fact that they say sacraments are holy signs of the covenant of grace, immediately instituted by God to represent Christ and his benefits and to confirm our interest in him, as also to put a visible difference between those that belong unto the church and the rest of the world, excuse me, and solemnly to engage them to the service of God in Christ according to his word. So maybe another way we could think of this, when we think of the difference between baptism and the Lord's Supper in contrast to the word, either read or preached, and then also prayer. This, may be, this might be a little confusing, but we, still have to, we have to make these categories so that we're not overstating what the purpose of these things are. And so it might be okay to think of them as a difference between public and private sacraments or ordinances, and then or outward or inward. And so the baptism and the Lord's Supper would be the private or the inward ones because those are only for people who are part of the new covenant. But you could be at a church service and you could participate in hearing the word read and preached. And you could be present while it's praying. And, and so those are more out those are more outward or the or the public. Ever thinking of it in that regard. But these two, baptism and the Lord's Supper, they stand apart. They stand a little bit different. And we're considering, you know, these these two, baptism and the Lord's Supper, as more of, as a private ordinances because baptism and, and the Lord's Supper are only to be ministered to those who are in the new covenant. Now, 
if you remember what question 93 asserted, it's that these four elements, the word, baptism, the Lord's Supper, and prayer, were ordinary means by which Christ communicates the benefits of redemption to us, and that they were means made effectual to the elect for salvation. So last week, 94 and 95, we considered how the word, and especially the preaching of the word, was made effectual to salvation, especially preaching. You know, when, when we... When the word is preached, we're supposed to actually preach Christ, not just simply talk about Christ and what he's done, but preach Christ. The message is supposed to come off in the indicative as to what Christ has done for you. And that is a means of grace by which we are encouraged and we are known to the benefits of redemption are applied to us then through the preached word when the pastor stands up there and he preaches Christ, not simply preaches about Christ, but preaches Christ, tells of what he has accomplished for you uh, through his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, and exaltation. And then there's the read of the word, which is also good. Uh, reading God's word is, is a benefit to us, um, and especially to us today, right? Because we have such access to the word of God, whereas people in times past didn't have that access. And so reading, when we read in the spirit, as we talked about last week, that is a, a benefit to us as well. It's something that God makes effectual to our salvation. But the word's place in this is a little bit different than prayer and baptism and Lord's Supper. If you remember, the word was special because it has the, the purpose of also being convicting or convincing and converting as well as building us up in holiness. And only the word has that element to it as the means of grace. Uh, the word is always attached to the sacraments as well, to the baptism of the Lord's Supper. Gerhardus Voss said that the word is resident in the sacrament. The word is accompanied with the sacrament. And if one takes away the word, well, then there's nothing left of the sacrament. And then if one takes away the sacrament because of that, well, the word is still not lost. I tried to talk about that last week, if you remember as well, that whenever we have the Lord's Supper or baptism, there's always words preceding it. And the, the, the sacraments themselves are like visible words. Uh, they, they picture what Christ has done and those benefits that are given to us in them. But they, almo- they must always be accompanied by the preached word as well. Otherwise, they're, they're worthless. They're, they're, they're not helping anyone. The, the, the word is primary. And so... You know, Voss's comment, he emphasized the difference in these ordinances. The word is primary. And so that brings us to 96. And so we have to remember that the word is primary as we think of these as well. But they are still means of grace, and they're ordinary and outward means that are made effectual to salvation. And so in this breakdown, I was really helped by uh, Thomas Boston, I, Boston on, on your, um, that outline I gave you. I wrote Thomas Watson. I meant, I mean... Thomas Boston. Although, read everything you can of Thomas Watson as well, too. He's really helpful also. So, question 96 says, How do baptism and the Lord's Supper become effectual means of salvation? And the answer is, Baptism and the Lord's Supper become effectual means of salvation, not for any virtue in them or in him that does administer them, but only by the blessing of Christ and the working of the Spirit in those that by faith receive them. So a lot of very similar topics to what we talked about last week. Let me say that again. Baptism and the Lord's Supper become effectual means of salvation, 
not for any virtue in them or in him that does administer them, but only by the blessing of Christ and the working of the Spirit and those that by faith receive them. So some initial thoughts that we see right away, uh, the number of sacraments in the New Testament again, there's two. The, the former and the, the former is the sacrament of our initiation into Christ and our union with him, the baptism that is. And then the latter is of our nourishment in and our continual communion with him. And one of the things I said last time as well, too, is that a better, when we're thinking of these really as the means of grace, like I think we properly should, our focus should be more on the reality of what God is doing in them rather than what it is that we are doing. And unfortunately, in many Baptist circles, that emphasis is flipped. Uh, baptism often just simply becomes your public profession of faith before the church. And by all means, it is absolutely that. But it's more about the promise of what God, will, what God has done in Christ and your union with Christ. And I'll save some of those details for when we get to the actual questions on baptism. And the same thing with the Lord's Supper as well, too. It, it, the Lord's Supper is not something that... In, Pastor Nick mentioned a lot of this this morning as well, too. But the Lord's Supper is not something that we have to, that we do in order to, um, or that we have to make, like, make sure that we're worthy enough to do it, uh, that we have to search out our hearts to find out if there's any sin so that we'll be able to come up to it. No, the Lord's Supper is not, again, not about what we do. It's about what Christ has done for us. And so if you have faith in Christ, then you participate in the Lord's Supper because it is a means of grace that is meant to nourish you and to grow you and to mature you in the Lord. Again, it's more about what Jesus has done than what, than what, we, have, than what we contribute. So secondly, uh, we see the efficacy of these sacraments mentioned here in this. Thomas Boston said, they are effectual to salvation in those in whom they have their effect they being united to Christ into one body and partaking more and more of his spirit in those ordinances respectively, which so secures their salvation from sin and wrath too. So in other words, these are ordinary means that God uses to build us up and continue to save us. So think of salvation in three categories. You have been saved, you presently are saved, and you will be finally or fully saved. It's God is working throughout that whole process. Salvation isn't just some one-time act in the past. We are continually being saved by Christ. For when, when he starts that work in you, at the moment of your justification, it is secure and is complete all the way to the very end of that, which will end up being your glorification as well. Which is, you know, if you remember that golden chain in Romans 8, that all who he called all the way to he will fully glorify at the end of that chain. And so these means, baptism and the Lord's Supper, are means of grace that he makes effectual to our continual salvation, to, to strengthening us, to sanctifying us. And of course, we only get baptized once individually. But our viewing of others' baptisms is an encouragement to us as well. Because it reminds us of what it is that Christ has done in us as well, too. And again, we'll save that. This is more introductory, trying to look at both of these together. Um, thirdly, uh, we see who it is that they're effectual to. They're not effectual to everyone, but they're effectual to believers only. As the Catechism says, to those who receive them by faith. 
right? Only who has faith? Those who have been born again. Those who have been regenerated. Those who are truly saved. A living faith. And so they're effectual to them. And then fourthly, how it is that they become effectual. Their efficacy is not from, them, from their, uh, themselves, nor is it from the administrator, though we shouldn't think that any, just anyone should administer them. Though if we look at the historic confessions, which these catechisms are based off of, there, we read both of them earlier this um, evening already, both the London Baptist Confession in chapter 28 and the Westminster in chapter 27, both say that they should be performed and administered by lawfully ordained men. So in our culture today, I mean, they'll let anybody, in many churches, it's very popular to just let anybody baptize anybody. And again, maybe we'll save that for when we talk about baptism. But it's important to know for now, at least, that the efficacy of these sacraments does not come from the one, the person, the pastor who's administering them, even though it is important that we do have the right man there. Uh, and where it is that they come from, of course, is the Spirit of Christ. So their efficacy depends on the operation of the Holy Spirit working in them through the faith that has been given to them. So let's think of this answer in five categories, okay? And remember, so if you're thinking of an outline, here's the outline that I'm trying to work this answer, this question and answer into. Um, and remember, you know, baptism in the Lord's Supper will be looked at specifically over the coming weeks. And so we'll look at, especially there's more questions. I think there's five questions for baptism and then three for the Lord's Supper before we get to prayer. So number one, um, that the sacraments are a means of salvation. We'll consider that first. They, excuse me, they are effectual means of salvation. And then two, we'll consider the efficacy of the sacraments. And then three, we'll look a little bit more closely at for who they are effectual. And then fourth, uh, think again about where the efficacy comes from or where it arises from. And then we'll conclude with four inferences from this that, um, I mean, there's many more inferences as well, but four inferences that we'll talk about tonight. So number one, um, the sacraments, they're a means of salvation. Of special note, by the way, too, they become a means of salvation, we read. They become a means of salvation. There's a, in other words, there's a prior act of salvation having already occurred. Get more to that in just a moment. So what is that salvation which the sacraments are said to be means of? I mean, we talk about salvation in many different ways. But the salvation that we're referring to here with these sacraments, it's, it's the whole salvation purchased by Jesus Christ for the elect. And that consists primarily, I think maybe if we wanted to think more, we could think maybe, maybe other categories, but I'm we'll present two major categories. Um, the first one, our major parts, first one, we have salvation from sin. Uh, you know, Matthew 1.21, he shall save his people from their sins. Our sins stand over us, condemning us. This is why, you know, we, when we share the gospel, we can't just simply go up to people and say, look, you know, God loves you. Uh, why don't you put your faith in him and start coming to church and your life will be all the more full, and all the more complete? Well, that's, that's not dealing with 
the aspect of salvation because there has to be an announcement of the fact that, that you are in the, the person apart from Christ who is cut off from the grace of the Lord in a saving sense especially, um, if not altogether, depending on how we want to think of grace. But if there's not an announcement of the sin in that person's life and what they're being, what the, they need to repent and be saved of, then they're missing out on really what the gospel is and what, a God, what God accomplishes for us in the gospel. So it is a salvation from sin. And then the fact that it's a salvation from sin means that it's a salvation from something else as well. It's a salvation from wrath, which, again, when, you, when your gospel presentation is God loves you, you're going to have a more full life, just want you come and come to church and see how much better your life is, you're missing the point that people are under the wrath of God because of the wages of sin is death. Every person will perish that does not partake of the reconciliation that is offered to us in Christ and the salvation that he provides because of the wrath of God. The Apostle Paul writing um, about this report that he heard to the uh, Thessalonian church. In 1 Thessalonians, he says this to them, talking about that, about the testimony that they have. And he said in verse 10, he says, And to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. It's Jesus. There, there is wrath to come for people who are not united to Christ. And Jesus delivers us from that wrath. And we should be clear here as well that the, the wrath it is it's primarily of the Father, but it's appropriate right, to say it's of, this, of the Son and of the Spirit too. It's not as if the Father and, and the Son and the Spirit are not have different ideas about sin and what it, its wages earn, right? They all agree. And so it is, but it is specifically Jesus, the God-man, who saves us from the wrath to come. So Thomas Watson says, he says about Jesus' deliverance of wrath, he says, This is the warding off of the blow of justice, the stroke of death eternal from the neck of a poor creature. Christians are people who are saved from their sins as well as the wrath that our sins deserve. And, and both these parts make it a great salvation. It is a great salvation that we have. We have inherited guilt from Adam that makes us sin. And because of that, we are willfully sinning ourselves right from the very moment. By nature, we were children of wrath, Ephesians 2 tells us. And the... The salvation is so absolutely necessary for us to be right with God. There's, there is no other way. There's, there's no other way. So you're just praying a, a prayer isn't going to make it happen. It is the work of Christ that was planned out in God's eternal decree, but then played out in time when he took on flesh and he went and he lived a holy life. And then yet, nevertheless, he went to the cross willingly as a substitute for you there on the cross to take all the wrath that your sin deserved because of his great love for us. So we can't, uh, Hebrews 2.3 says, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? And his point, of course, is rhetorical. We can't escape. You cannot escape any other way except through the salvation that God offers. We mustn't neglect it. And that's why we should be diligent in telling others about it. So 
the means of salvation that these uh, sacraments are speaking of are, is the very thing that we as Christians are most concerned about, right? It's, it's about our eternal hope, uh, the salvation of, um, from the penalty of our sins and the wrath of God, which when we have that, of course, then we know every blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So, secondly, um, when we think about in, in this category too, well, what, 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 how, how do these become a means of salvation? Well, a means, of course, has a specific relationship to an end. And an end that which is used to bring about a specific purpose or specific point. So think about perhaps like our elections and, and recent ones even. I know that there was a lot of people who had trouble um, voting for Donald Trump in the last presidential election. But think about the way how most people thought about it. It was a means to an end. If you didn't vote for Trump or you voted for somebody else, well, then you're going to have uh, Joe Biden or, you know, whoever it was Hillary Clinton years before. And so sometimes, you know, you don't understand what a means to an end is. It's something that, that happens that leads to a specific outcome. And so a means of salvation is anything appointed by God in the use of which he carries on to the salvation of his people. Okay, so if we're thinking of a means to an end of salvation, it's something that God uses in which he carries his people on through the salvation that he's promised. So all of these outward and ordinary means in the church are means of salvation. That's the common end of them all. That's what they're intended to, to accomplish. This is the way God has ordained for the church to exist and operate. Now, they are all means by which we are to fulfill the you know, great commission even. Matthew 28, 20, the, the, the last verse in Matthew's gospel, where Jesus tells them, teach them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I'm with you to the end of the age. How do we do that? It's by taking up these ordinary and outward means. Right? That's, that's essential to that. Remember in question 93, Pastor Nick spoke about other potential means and ordinances, but among them, the most eminent of them, the, most, the ones that stand out, were the word, sacraments, and prayer. And prayer has a relation to both, and it's to be mixed with them, right? I mean, do we not always pray before we have the word either read when we're doing it privately or corporately? Well, there's always prayer involved in our worship service. Or do we not always pray um, before baptism? Yeah, we do. Or what about the Lord's Supper? There's prayer involved with that as well, too. And, and really... We should be praying throughout the whole time as well, depending upon the Spirit to make these things effectual in our lives. So, again, the, um, the difference between the Word and the sacraments is that the Word is the means of conversion, and the sacraments then are the means of confirmation. Uh, so the Word is, is leading. It is initiary. And the sacraments are the subsequent means of salvation. They, they follow the, the work that the Word does in the effectual call to make us alive. And again, remember what we talked about last week. They, they become effectual, as the Catechism says. They become effectual. The Word is first to have its effect, and then the sacraments have theirs on the individual as well, who already has been impacted by the Word. So think of 1 Corinthians 3, 5-7. through 7. You remember 1 Corinthians 3, what's happening there. The, um, there are these factions developing in Corinth, and the Apostle Paul, is he has his own little faction, and there's others also. 
But in verse 5 through 7, look at what he says. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. It, I says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters anything, but only God who gives the growth. Right? So there's that previous work of God being inside the person through the Spirit. The preacher comes, he delivers the means of grace, the word, but it's God who gives the growth. God is the one who makes the means effectual. Or Romans 4.11. He, being Abraham, received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him a father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. So we see in that that and, you know, circumcision was a sacrament or an ordinance of the Old Covenant. And it was the means by which God used to set Abraham up as the father of all who believe without being circumcised. It was effectual to that end. And so that the righteous would be counted among him as well, right? And so we know they're joined to a previous act of God for a couple of reasons. Um, that they, they're not just, they don't just have power in themselves. We'll get to this more clearly in just a moment. But they're, they're attached to a previous act of God. So number one, um, from the Lord's appointing of them to, for that end to be used. So Acts 2.37 to 38 Acts 2, 37 to 38. This is Peter's sermon at Pentecost, or it's the response to it, right? The, the Lord has appointed these things to be used. So they, they hear this sermon. They're told that they had part in Jesus being offered up, but it ultimately happened according to God's um, eternal decree and his counsel. And they're cut to the heart. They're, they're feeling conviction. They, what, their, their response is, what have we done? We are guilty of sending the Lord to the cross who was not guilty at all. We, what, what should we do now because of this? And so Peter's response to them is verse 37. It says, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and, Peter, and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the free gift of the Holy Spirit. So he's, he's telling them to be baptized because of this, this work that's being done in their heart already. It is it's Jesus' ordained means. The Lord Jesus has appointed them to this end because for the forgiveness of sins, because you have had your sins forgiven and you receive this gift of the Holy Spirit, that you're to, to partake in this means he's making an effectual salvation because the Lord has set it up to be this way. Baptism is the initiary sacrament, right? They had just heard the gospel. They were just converted. And so now it's be baptized. That's the initial sacrament. Then think about the supper. 1 Corinthians 10, 16. 
1 Corinthians 10, 16, the Apostle Paul is teaching on the abuses in the Lord's Supper in, in the next chapter as well, um, 10 and 11. In 10, he speaks about the Lord's Supper as well. Verse 16, he says, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? And so, in that communion, that we, we are participating in it. Uh, it allows the safety of our souls for time and eternity because of what Jesus has done. Because it's more than just remembering Jesus' work. It's also a means of grace that shows us that we have participation in Christ's blood being shed and his body being broken. The, the, his blood being shed, his body being broken is the very means of our salvation. And the supper is doing more than reminding us of that, of our covenant with him. It is, re, it is reminding us that we have union with him and that, we've parti- that our, we're, we have participation in these things even through a spiritual sense. And that's through our union with him. Because he did those things, we have salvation. Secondly, um, they actually do something for us as well. There's a, there's a spiritual work that God is working in us through them. Grace is being communicated to us through the spirit he has given to us. And so think of the account with the eunuch in Acts 8 that I mentioned last week. At the end of the story, the eunuch gets baptized. And we read, if you look there, if you're looking at Acts 8, the eunuch went on his way rejoicing. <laughs> he was rejoicing after his baptism. Uh, you hear many stories of that when people come up out of the waters they are rejoicing. You see it on their faces often as well too, just the exuberance that they have for the Lord's work in their life and being in their participation in that ordinance, in that sacrament. Or think of the early church in the days when Christ had ascended. Uh, rightly at, right short after he ascended to his exalted state there at the right hand of the Father where he lives to mediate for us as our advocate in Acts 2.42, we read of the early church that they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. They didn't just start making up their own way, right? These are the, the elements of a Christian worship service. It's really, it's what it means to worship in spirit and truth. It's not something, properly speaking, that you do when you're alone with the Lord, meditating on his word. It's good, of course, to do that, but not in place of gathering with the church but in supplement to it. But these things are effectual salvation because the Lord has ordained them to be that. He set them up to, to be this very thing. He could have set up something else, I suppose, if he wanted to, but he didn't. This is what he has given to us. That's why we need to take great care with them when we think about them. That's why you know we are a convictionally you know, a Baptist church in part as well because we're not wanting to baptize infants. Because we want to take great care when we think about this sacrament. Same thing with the Lord's table. Why it's not just some table at the back of the door for when you walk out with a, with a little cup of uh, wine and then bread. Because we want to think about who's participating in this. Because Christ has ordained these to be means of grace. These, these vehicles which contribute to our growth in Christ. When we, when we participate in them in faith, and we'll get to that here in just a moment. Um, so let's think of the, the effect, efficacy of the sacraments. Think of the point of them. 
and even all the ordinances, remember, um, right? It, it's, it's God's end that is meant to be accomplished here. And so the efficacy of a sacrament uh, or of a means is it's reaching its end for which is appointed to. And if it falls short of that, well, then what is it? It's ineffectual, right? So these, again, these are for people who are saved, right? It's not because they are effectual. Now, that doesn't mean that always save people participate. We'll say more on that in a moment. But we need to grasp that this is just the ordinary way that God grows us and preserves us to the end. Now, it could be, right? In the catechism and the confessions, they're careful to say ordinary because there could be situations like where you get imprisoned for your faith and you're cut off from taking the Lord's Supper and you don't get to see anybody be baptized or maybe you even get saved at some sort of a situation where the state comes in and it shuts everything down even before you had a chance to be baptized. Well, then what? They're not, you're not able to participate even in your baptism. Well, those are extraordinary examples, right? For most of the church, most of the time, baptism in the Lord's Supper is going to be available for you. And it's the way that God normally grows us and preserves us to the end. So think of maybe a couple other examples um, about efficacy and inefficacy. If you knew I was in sin and you came and you rebuked me, if it was effective, what would the end of that look like? I would repent. Yeah, I would repent. There would be reform. If I just continued on, it would be ineffective, right? Or if I'm, if I'm really hungry, would a cup of water be a good thing to have or would a tri-tip sandwich be better? The, the tri-tip sandwich, right? No, always better. If the end is for me to no longer be hungry, a tri-tip sandwich is going to do that a lot better than a cup of water. Now, the end of the sacraments being to represent and apply Christ and his benefits to the individual, to, to sanctify, to grow, and preserve us in the faith in, the efficacy of the sacraments lies in their reaching those ends. And then they are effectual. When they not only represent, but actually do apply Christ and his benefits to the receiver of them. So again, we... We have to understand these. If we're going to really be excited about them and excited about coming together and, with, and worship and what God will do, we have to think about them more in light of what God is doing through them. We are, we are more passive than active in the sacraments. God, God is, is the one who is acting, truly. Now, the end of the sacraments... Oh, I said that already. So... Think of Romans 4.11 again, and granted this is Old Covenant, so the positive sign is different, it's circumcision, but it actually did what God intended it to be. Right? Remember Romans 4.11, read a moment ago, he, Abraham, received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. Well, it, it did that. It, it, that circumcision... It was, he would have been wrong if he didn't, if he wasn't circumcised, right? That, he would have been in violation of the covenant that God had made with him. And so it, it was effectual to that end. It, it, we look back to Abraham as the, you know, the father of the nation of Israel. It was effectual. 1 Peter 3.21 is a somewhat of a controversial um, especially a lot, uh, verse or passage, especially across denominations. But 321 says, Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. 
not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, that's it's kind of a tough passage. Baptism, parenthesis, saves you. There's a doctrine that go, that's out there that goes by baptismal regeneration. Uh, this is the teaching that God regenerates sinners. That is to say, he makes them spiritually alive through the waters of baptism. Right? And that's contrary to what we've been saying up to this point, right? I've been, trying, I've been trying to be clear last week and now this week as well too that these sacraments, they are built off of the word. They become means of grace, effectual salvation because there's already been a work of salvation through the word wrought in a person. Or what else did I say last week as well too and this week that the word is, a, and the word preached especially is the primary means because it has the role of convincing or convicting and converting, whereas these other ones don't. But those who would advocate for baptismal regeneration, based off of this verse, are then making baptism a convincing and converting sacrament, right? Or ordinance, which we don't, or I'm not wanting to do that. That view of baptism is to be rejected, for it contradicts what the scriptures clearly teach, which is that God regenerates sinners by the power of his Holy Spirit, not because they believe and are baptized, but so that they will believe and be baptized. Uh, Those who are dead in their trespasses and sins do not believe. Uh, Brothers and sisters, why? Because they are dead. They They are spiritually dead. The, those who are, are dead aren't able or even willing to believe and truly be baptized, not truly at least. God must breathe spiritual life into them and if, if they are to run to God through faith in Jesus Christ. We are naturally blind. We are naturally deaf. God must give us eyes that see. He must give us ears that hear. We're naturally rebellious. God must subdue us and call us to himself by his word and spirit. He must draw us, as the Apostle John writes. Regeneration does not proceed from faith, much less baptism. No, it precedes faith. It pre- it, properly speaking, as a Baptist, my conviction is that it, pre- it should precede baptism. Regeneration is, that is. Where we are able to believe only because God has awakened us to himself. But this does not mean that the Spirit of God does not work any further within us after regeneration of faith. He who began a work in you will what? Complete to the very end, right? And so he starts that work in us, and he also continues that work in us. It doesn't just end at the time of your regeneration and your given of faith. The Spirit continues to work with those he calls to the Father through the Son. They have the seal of the Spirit, and he does sanctify them further still. But what about this verse in First Peter that we just read, which said, Baptism, blank, 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 now saves you. Does Peter mean to say that you are saved by baptism? Is, is baptism to be the instrument of your justification? Is it to be the instrument by which we receive the gift of salvation? Well, our answer It must be no, because the scriptures clearly teach in many other places that the instrument by which we receive salvation is faith. I've talked about that a lot lately, so I won't go into it in detail. So what then does Peter mean? And also this comports to how we think of it as a means of grace as well. Uh, The short answer is this. 
that it may be said that baptism saves us because of what it is that the baptism signifies. In water baptism, the believer makes a public profession of faith. It's not the, the, the baptism itself saves you, but it's the thing that the baptism signifies. That, that's what God is communicating through the baptism. And then your public profession of faith is, it, is you, you know, going through the process of going under the water and coming up out of the water. Water baptism signifies the washing away of our sins. And how, it is, how is it that our sins are washed away? Not by the baptismal waters themselves, but by the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and received by faith. The Roman Catholic system is much different. Maybe we'll save that for when we get to baptism specifically. But that's what Peter means when we get to the baptism question specifically. Or you and I can just have conversations later since I know you're very interested about such things. Um, but that's what First Peter 3.21 actually says. Baptism, a quote here, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So when one is baptized in water, they are saying to the world, Jesus is Lord, and they're appealing to God for a good conscience. What is their appeal rooted in? Not the baptismal waters itself, but the finished work of Christ. Faith in Christ is the means by which we come to have the salvation that Christ has earned. It may be said that baptism saves us because baptism is a sign of all that. Now, how we perceive the effect isn't always the same in different individuals. Sometimes these effects of the sacraments are so lively and so evident that the individual who perceives them, like such as the eunuch who did in Acts 28, he, he leaves rejoicing. I think of, you know, my own baptism. I, I was a new, relatively new believer. I think I was only trusting in Christ for maybe, I don't receive Christ, maybe about six months before that, seven months before that. And I was, you know, dealing with addictions and other things. But in God's grace, I, after that, I was able, like, you know, cigarettes. As a matter of fact, that was one of the things that I was able to just somehow stop. Uh, and there's, there's different ways that we can think of this as well, too. Um, but sometimes... It's evident. They're, they're, they're lively and evident. After participating in the Lord's Supper, uh, there's, you know, the Lord's grace is just all the more evident to you. I'll have more to say that about, about that soon. Sometimes, though, they're not discerned by the believer. And that might even be more often the case, though really they are made effective in them still, as it was with like the two disciples going to Emmaus. Remember when the two disciples in Luke 24 are walking with the Lord Jesus on the road to Emmaus? And there be, it's Jesus with them. And here's this means of grace, the word, and it's Jesus. So, I mean, is there any better preacher of the word and, and teacher of the word? There's not. And yet, it's not lively and evident in them until he left them, right? But that whole time, I mean, it was, they were partaking of it. And so, we just simply don't know all the time. But what we do as Christians is we trust what the Lord has said. And so, we we, if we don't feel like it, we come and we show up still because of what the Lord promises to accomplish through us, whether we feel it or not. Now, there are some signs that we can have of the, this efficacy in our, in our sanctification. Uh, number one sign would be the individuals clinging more closely to the hope of the covenant than before. Uh, you know, going out of itself more to Jesus Christ and his righteousness rather than looking to ourselves. Uh, this being the, the consequence of the sacraments, it's, it's 
evidence in its completion in our life, its effectiveness in our life. In other words, um, we are, you know, more excited about the gospel. We're the gospel being preached is a is great to us. We desire it. We want it. Uh, Philippians three three, Paul writes to them talking about the circumcision of the heart and he says for we are the circumcision who worship by the spirit of god and glory in christ jesus and put no confidence in the flesh right that's that's a statement from one who is being sanctified whose glory is in christ there's no confidence in the flesh the gospel is what's driving him there's a greater understanding and appreciation of the gospel you say it all the time that we should try to we should preach the gospel to ourselves every day why because we want to preserve that liveliness of the gospel in our life. We want to not, you know, it's easy for us to fall back into a place of, um, you know, neglect of that sort of thing and then depending upon ourselves. But when we know that these means of grace are accomplishing their purpose in life, there will be a greater joyfulness and exuberance towards the gospel, greater zeal for the, for the gospel. And another sign is a, is a greater tenderness with respect to sin and duty, and a longing to be rid of the body of sin and death. Uh, this, is a, this is a sign of its application to you. The other last week I was talking with Brother John even, just about like, should, should we read the Word? Well, it's my, my conviction to read the Word. Well, you have a conviction to read the Word. Why? <laughs> That's because God's been sanctifying you through the means of grace. right? You, that, those sorts of things. That I, I don't want to smoke a cigarette. right? Why? Because God has been sanctifying you through the means of grace. Your flesh desires it. But through these means of grace, and the sacraments especially, and all of the ordinances, God has grown us, he sanctifies us. There are signs from them. Um, Romans 6, 4, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Right? That desire to walk in the newness of life not in your sins. Romans 8, 23. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. The nearness to Christ is the cause of our distance from sin, the desire to be distant from sin. If you are, you know, embracing sin, it's hard to be, you know, we're speaking metaphorically here, right? Because Christ is always with his saints. I have promised that I'll always be with you to the end of the age. So even if you are embracing all the sin, you're probably not praying as much as you used to be at least. But Christ is still obviously there present with you. And there's discipline happening as well too. But when we are, when the, the means of grace are causing their effect, they're being made effectual in us, there we will see in us a desire to be holy. And we kind of go through hills and battles in that. That's part of the Christian walk in life. Try to go quite quicker. I know we started kind of late. Um, who are these sacraments effectual for? Well, not to everyone who partakes of them. Okay, uh, think of you know Simon the magician. He was baptized, but then he continued in rebellion. After that, he wanted to be rich, to have these powers so that he could be more wealthy. In Acts eight thirteen and twenty three, um, the sign was applied to him, but he didn't partake of his benefits. Or think of you know how many partake of the Lord's supper unworthily. The apostle tells us how highly some were respected in, in Corinth for their uh, sacramental privileges, yet God was not pleased with them, is what he said in 1 Corinthians 10. He wasn't pleased with them, even though they were partaking of these things. And it's a sad experience when we see that. Um, secondly, 
it's effectual to believing receivers. Remember what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 10. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and the mouth one confesses is saved. It's effectual only to those who are believing. Mark 16, 16. He that believes and is baptized shall be saved. There has to be belief attached to as well, too. That's when it's effectual. We talked about that last week and the week before. And it's the same with the sacraments as it was with the word. Um, Hebrews 4, 2. And this is speaking about the word, but you could just insert the sacraments here. For good news came to us, justice to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. Right? So the same thing with the sacrament. It won't benefit them if they're not united by faith with Christ. Where does the efficacy come from? Well, we could say in the negative sense first. The catechism gives it to us in that. Number one, it does not come from any virtue in themselves. In other words, in the elements themselves that these blessed effects are produced. They are a spiritual means and they're different than a comparison to physical means, right? God has put a power of nourishment in our food. And so you don't have to be spirit filled. If you're hungry and you eat, some, you eat a whole pizza, you're going to be full. Or if you're, there's no, he didn't do that with our clothes. There's no a warming effect in our clothes. If you're cold and you put on a sweater, you're going to become more warm no matter what. But no power of working grace, either in baptism or bread and wine in the Lord's Supper, will happen if, there's not, if someone is not spirit-filled first. So the work being done itself will never confer grace. The scripture denies this power to the sacraments themselves. Think of the pools of Siloam uh, there in John 4. Remember, this is only in the King James Version in the... Um, a Byzantine text. It says in verse 4, which won't be in our ESV Bibles, it says, These pools will never prove healing if there be not a moving of the waters from a superior cause, essentially, right? In John 5, 4. It's, or it says, An angel went down to a certain season in the pool and troubled the water. Whosoever then first, after the troubling the water, stepped in was made whole of whatsoever disease he had. So there's this initial acting first. Secondly, it's not these things, the efficacy does not come from the piety nor intention of the administrator either. The holiness and the best qualifications of the person delivering them in a minister can't make them effectual. Again, we already read 1 Corinthians 3, 6-7. I planted Apollos water, but God gave the growth. So neither he plants nor he waters anything, but only God who gives the growth. Paul, Apollos, they're both just men. They're both sinners who need the means of grace as well too. But it's God who gives the growth. It's God who makes them effectual. The efficacy of God's ordinances doesn't depend upon men. It doesn't depend on the administrators, either as to the, the making them or the ruining of them to be effective, actually. Paul's very confusing statement. I've heard this. People try to quote this verse as to try to say that we just shouldn't say anything when people are teaching a, in a way that's not good and right. And so Philippians 1, 16 to 18, he says, the latter, he's speaking about these people who he's not pleased with. He says, the latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not necessarily, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice. Right? So they still have the true substance of the truth of the gospel being given out. And so he was able to rejoice in that. Because even though these, the poor quality of the administrator of that means of grace, um, it didn't affect it. Because again, it's God who works and who, who um, 
works in the Spirit. And then positively, we can say that the efficacy of the sacraments depend upon the blessing of Christ. The the blessing of Christ is the cause without which they would have no efficacy. For as much of the Spirit of Christ will not work by by these means unblessed. So you think of the how Jesus quotes Isaiah, um, and he talks about people who he says, "This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men." So even though the the word is preached, right? He's it's Jesus. Could there be an any? Could there be an administrator of the sacrament of preaching, for example, that's any better than Jesus? No, there cannot. And yet these people, they worship him in vain. Um, and so it wasn't on it wasn't on him. It's the efficacy of the sacrament depends upon the blessing of Christ, who he's going to bless with it. In other words, those who are saved. And I think you know Christ instituted, instituted both baptism and the Lord's Supper, right? I have a feeling we'll look at those in coming weeks, so I won't take us there now. But it is Jesus himself who set up baptism in the Lord's Supper. Christ has blessed these ordinances first, and then the Spirit works in them and by them. So it depends, secondly then, on the the working of the Spirit in them and by them on the souls of the receivers as the efficient cause. If it's going to be effective, it depends on the working of the Spirit in them and and by the souls of the individuals of the receivers as the efficient cause. So Romans 8, 9 through 11. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So it needs, there needs to be the blessing of Christ and then that is impacted by the Spirit of Christ who is in you. That's what makes them e- effective. So the Spirit comes along with them and renders them effectual to his own. There's inferences we could draw from this. I'll try to go quick here. Um, but number one, we, when we understand that God has chosen to bless these things as a means of grace to grow and sanctify us, number one, we need to learn to prize the sacraments. Right? We don't want to think of it as like, oh man, so for us, for now at least, we're doing the Lord's Supper on the first Sunday of the, uh, of the month. So we don't think, oh man, I'm going to be here a little bit longer today because we're doing the Lord's Supper. Right? Um, that's not prizing it. You're not, you're not understanding what is happening spiritually through these things. Uh, we need to you know, desire. We don't, same thing with baptism, right? If um, as a Baptist, we want to be careful that we're not baptizing people who aren't ready for baptism. But at the same time, we don't want to make the mistake of not baptizing someone who is ready because it, it is a blessing unto them. And if someone is ready for baptism, then they should receive that. And so you, ha- you have to think about those types of things. Uh, secondly, though, because of the efficacy of these and how they work, we want to rest not on the sacraments. Their means which are not effectual to everyone that receives them. Many receive them both who will never receive Christ. But for all of that wearing of Christ's badge, these people end up working the devil's work still. And so it's not your receiving them, but receiving benefit by them that will be a good plea in the end. And so we, 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 want our, we don't want to rest in the sacraments themselves. That would be like the mistake of Rome. Right, where they put the emphasis on the sacraments themselves. We don't want to do that. We want to be those who are resting in Christ, which is the, the third point. 
we look to Christ. We look more to Christ's work, his life, death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and the promises accompanying to it with respect to the sacraments, and less to the men who have a commission to administer them. Right, so think of Rome in the confessional booth. Right, If you've sinned, you have to go to confession. Why? Because this priest in there has the ability then to pray or you, and, and to absolve you of your sins. Well, no. You, you don't want to look at them like that. We go to Christ. That's where our rest is. The, the sacraments, they're meant to point us to Christ. They're not meant to point us back to the sacraments themselves. They're meant to make us look to who Christ is and what Christ is continuing to do in our life. And then... Lastly, uh, we should be concerned for the working of the Spirit in all ordinances, and particularly in the sacraments, because without the working of the Spirit, they have no effect. Right? And so we should be concerned with the proper administration of these sacraments. Uh, it should concern every Christian that the right persons are being baptized, that the right persons are, are taking the Lord's Supper. It shouldn't just be the elders concerned, right? It should be every member of the church, right? Because it, these are for the body. And these are the ways in which God grows us as the body. So I think there's a lot more that we could say. And again, we'll look at specifically these um, ordinances and the sacraments, really, over the next seven lessons, I believe, seven sermons, unless we combine a couple of questions. But we want to think of these in light of what Scripture tells us, that, that God has you, that He is using them to sanctify us, to grow us. They are effectual means to our salvation. He preserves us unto the end through these ordinances. So any um, questions? Maybe we could pray after we do the questions and comments this time. Yes, uh, Carol. Just a quick question. When I was saved, I was 14. Yeah. And I left the Catholic Church, and my mom was really bitter about that. And the Baptist church that I went to, because I was a minor, felt they should talk to my parents about whether I could be baptized or not. And my mom absolutely refused. She said she's already been baptized as a baby. Yeah. I was so disappointed. And when you brought that fact up, that the right people that are ready to be baptized should be baptized, you know, I thought, what Baptist church would do that? I don't get that. Then when I was 19, I went and got baptized. But well, if I, I was in their shoes, yeah, I mean, so if I was in their shoes, I think I would have talked to your parents too. But if your mom said no, and I was like, well, Carol's really, she's showing evidence that she really loves the Lord, the Lord is working her, then we're going to baptize you because God's a greater authority than your yeah, mom. I get and that. So, I get that. yeah. <laughs> yeah, Chris? If, um, someone wants to be baptized and that person feels like they're ready but you don't feel that they're ready to be baptized then what happens? Well, Does we... that person have to go to another church? Ready. Yeah, you got to find ready. So one of the things as Baptists, we, we baptize professors, professing believers. We can't it's hard to say that we baptize believers. Ideally, that's the point, right? But I don't actually know if someone's truly believing or not, right? We, we want to emphasize here at First County Church, and many other churches do as well, too, a meaningful membership in which we, you know, that's why we have a discussion. We have a members class, so people understand what it means to be a member of a church. And then there's an interview process where we understand that, do you know the gospel? Uh, so, like, so to Stephen's point, what is it meant by ready? 
well, if you feel like you're ready, and then I sit you down and I say, well, what's the gospel? And you tell me, you mentioned no, nothing about, you know, you say, well, I have no sin to repent for. <laughs> well, then you're not really ready, right? So it just means on what is, what is meant by ready. So if, if you feel like you're ready, and from, us, from our vantage point, you know, from that discussion that we have, then it would just go from there. Have you guys ever turned down somebody for, for baptism? Yeah. Really? Yeah. We've said, yeah, she'll wait a little bit. Or what's happened, I think, before is I've said no, and then another, and then Nick has said, I'll baptize him. <laughs> <laughs> That's happened. <laughs> and then they get baptized. Yeah. And you just want to drown them, right? No, nah, I mean, hopefully they're baptized. They're not just getting wet. But... They didn't give a Donald Trump answer, right? No, they didn't. They yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah Stephen? So, I, I, unless I missed it, I was going to say, now I know we talked about uh, who, you know, it's, kind of, it's important who baptizes, right? Yeah. Now, but I guess the question I have is, is it, and I know we have some examples, so ordinary, like you mentioned that word, ordinary. Yeah. Is it important, like, who people are baptized before? Like, should, should the body be present when people are being baptized? Yeah, so the catechism questions aren't going to actually get into that. I was looking forward to baptism. It's going to talk about who's the proper... It does talk about who's the proper subject of baptism, but it doesn't talk about the proper person who administrates it. But that was, so that was two questions that you had, right? So who does it? Um, well, you mentioned who does it in the, in the thing. Yes. I'm saying, should it be like before... But like obviously, I think so, yeah. In, in the case of the unit, when there was no believers around, I mean, right. there's those instances, or maybe in prison, when, like you say... Maybe people can't be around. But. but ordinarily, yes, I would think it matters. So because remember what, what we understand baptism as a sacrament, it's our initiation. And so it's, it's before a church body. So like if, you were, if a kid goes to summer camp, I would, I tried, this happened before at summer camps where I tried to stop the pastor from baptizing kids at summer camp. Just wait till he goes back to his church and he's with his pastors who know him. Um, you know, my... My mom, for, or my mom, for example, she wanted me to baptize her, and she ended up getting that by the Lord's sovereign plan, but I was over in Nevada visiting when it happened. But she was wanting to be baptized out here, and I was like, well, Mom, I, I'm excited for you to be baptized, but this isn't your church body. This isn't the, the local church that you're a part of. When she's out here, she's here. Um, but it does matter because baptism is signifying your entrance into that local community. And, you're, and now, granted, there is a universal aspect to it, but if you get baptized here and you don't, then you go back to your church, you know, two states away or two hours away, we never see you, well, then where's the accountability in that you're missing those things? So I, I would counsel someone to be baptized at their local church when they're ready. Well, he, let him finish really quick. Yeah, no, we'll just, just a backup to that. Obviously, you're not saying, though, <laughs> I know you're not saying this, but just to make it clear for you're not saying, uh, obviously, you need to be baptized every time you go to a new church. Though. No, you don't. Right. Yeah, just when, when you go to a new church, then you, there should be a discussion between those churches about the fact that you're baptized. Right? How many people, I could just, it grieves me. How many people leave, you know, First Family Church and then go to another church, a bigger church probably, where they, um, for whatever reason. But then we never hear from that other church asking about them. Like, do, do they not care about their spiritual history? I, I don't know, you know. Did you guys call my other church about me? Your Lutheran, the Lutheran church? Mm-hmm. We, the church? 
We ask everyone. Yeah, we contact everyone. But but we wouldn't contact the Roman Catholic Church because why? <laughs> they're, 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 we don't need to... I already know whatever they think is, is going to be contrary anyways to what I, what I want to say. Yeah, really? Uh, can an elder baptize somebody in a home, like in a bathtub? So, th- so even a Christian person? Yeah, so you hear people doing that. Like, I know a girl who baptized her nephews in her bath, bathtub at home and not a, not a part of any church. Well, I mean, you could do it, but is it anything? Is it just getting... See, there you go. Is it a means of grace at that point? Yeah. And I don't think so. Unless, you know, again, again, we're talking about ordinary ways that God works. Um, an elder doing it, there's more accountability there, I suppose. But, like... Why do it at someone's ba- away from the body? Like, are they not going to come and be part of the church? You know, if now what if it's like a shut in at their house and they can't leave, and then maybe you go and do it there because that's what's happened. Okay, that makes sense. But like ordinarily, yeah, you would do it before the congregation that you're a part yeah, of, no. that you're worshiping with, right? Because these these means are public in the sense that they're we're, they're done not they're privately. Yeah. 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 Proclaiming what God's done. Lutheran Church, once you were baptized and you did your confirmations and stuff, they said that you can baptize anybody because you are baptized. I think I understand why some people think that because I mean there's a, there's a priesthood of believers that we want to affirm, but nevertheless, um, and so I know a lot of you know Baptist churches that will they'll say this they say whoever led the person to faith that could be the person who baptizes them. But again, I think it's still, you're missing the point about what these things are because again, it's not about us. You know, it's, it's about what God has done and God has set up people to teach and preach and to equip people for the work of ministry. So. I have one more question. Okay. I think it was in Philippians. Uh-huh. Because you and I had this discussion about being baptized. You, I think it was in Philippians. Said, you said, um, those who believe are saved, and then those who are baptized are saved. So, what if you are just a believer and you trust in God and you're never baptized? Are you not saved then, or do you have to do both? Well, why would you, as a believer, not be baptized? You should die before you get a chance. Yeah, Maybe I mean, if you're if you're a believer, right? If you're believing, what are you believing, right? Remember what Jesus said at the end of the math at the Great Commission? Teach them to observe all that I've commanded. Well, you're believing Jesus. Jesus has commanded you to be baptized, right? It's a, it's your, it's a blessing for you to do so. So I why would you not want to do it? I have a fear of water, and I still got baptized. You got I guess that God is with me. Amen. And, and it happens. Yeah, well, I want it. We will deal with a catechism question that talks about the mode. So that's not me, though. <laughs> so do, would we receive someone who was sprinkled into membership? Well, that's a good question. We won't answer that right now. France? You did me. <laughs> France? Ten. Okay. It says that in doing so, many died and were sick. Yeah. 
think I'm contrary? Like something, like, can you repeat what you were saying? Uh, so I quoted, I quoted tonight 1 Corinthians 10, which says that it's participation. When we, so the fact that it actually is participation in his blood being shed and his body being broken, that's why, if we take it in a worthy manner, why there is the danger of there being judgment upon you because of what it actually is. It's not just some mere outward sign. There's an inward reality that is taking place in it. And so, you know, I, to my personal knowledge, I don't know of anyone that's like, you know, taking it in an unworthy manner and then is like all of a sudden develop some sort of a sickness or an illness. But I don't want to risk it either, you know. So I don't, you know, so I tr- so we fence the table and we try to encourage people, only those who are spirit-filled, only those who are really believing should come and participate. But, uh, yeah, I, I, not, I wasn't trying to say something contrary to that at least. Yeah. Thank you for clar- clarifying that. Yeah, Ivan? So we try to talk to them. Depends on like the situation. So like if we had someone in here who was like in the process of church discipline, and or and we or maybe let's say that we had went through church discipline and to the point of breaking fellowship with them, and you know removing them from membership, and then they show up on Sunday, and of course and they're here and they come up. We would yeah we would I think we would try to stop them until there's been a conversation to show that there's been repentance and reconciliation. Um, in other cases where people do it, then we want to talk to them. It's like, hey, like, how come you haven't been baptized yet? Let's talk about that. I need, like, a clear example. Like, someone comes in here with Satan witchcraft shirt or flaming homosexual, and they go to the table to take over something. Would you allow them to partake? Would you stop them? How would, you, how would, you how would, I, how would we do that? How would we make a scene? Yeah. They're, they're, <laughs> yeah. They're walking up. Yeah. I'm just curious. As a pastor, I'm just curious how you do Get out of here. <laughs> Can you stop someone from being baptized? Lord's Supper is a little bit more difficult. I think probably you would say, yeah, Lord's Supper is a little bit more difficult. I mean, we, we do our due diligence in saying what we say, that this is for believers, this is for people who have been baptized. If you haven't been baptized, maybe, you know, talk to an elder about that first and then, uh, and then and go from there. But... um if they went up and took it, like, am I going to jump down off the stage and slap it out of their hand? I'd, I mean, even would you look, I mean, I'm just thinking of my own mind how I would handle it. Yeah. But I'm just curious, like, would you just, like, say, hey, like, you're going to take it? We've done our due diligence and explaining it. Yeah. That's a good question. I mean, like, I, thankfully, for, that's never happened. <laughs> that's never happened where you have to, like, step down from behind the pulpit and... And so maybe there is a, um, a benefit into the way, you know, that Roman Catholics do it and says you have to come up to the man who is preaching, the minister, and then he could just reach like, nope, sorry, like, I don't know you, right? So, yeah, so, right. There, so we're talking, there are um, churches who practice, like, closed communion, right? And they do that to absolutely prevent that. And so they'll have communion during the, you know, they'll dismiss guests and visitors, and only if you're a member, then you can take communion. And I'm not opposed to that, technically. Um, that solves the problem, you know? 
that solves the problem. You just, it'd be impossible for it to come up because this is for only for people who are members. But then you run the problem like, well, what if R.C. Sprawl was in my church? And like, you know, he's not a member here at this local church. Then I'm going to, you know, because also it is a blessing. Well, R.C. Sprawl, I'll tell you something. Or, Joel Beakey. Where's Steve McCaster here? I left already. Joel Beakey was here. Would I deny Joel Beakey because he's not? Right. It's yeah. a little different, something that you have no clue. No idea. That comes in that's not a covenant, that's a better record. Yeah. Just ask him, can you guard out of his clock? Clip him at the legs. Amanda, we talk about, I guess we're talking about the subject with this. Amanda, your baptist do it at their night service on Sundays. Do they? Yeah. Clip that. Yeah, they do it at night service because they figure guests are not showing up at night service. I've heard Steve say before that they have more guests at their evening service. And that, so, but I don't know, but. We've got three more weeks on baptism to ask baptism questions. So, well, we're only going this late because prayer went so long, so. Any other, uh, yeah. So we actually, when I was in uh, Arizona, we ran into that problem where there was someone that we knew, like, for sure was not a believer. Um, and she tried taking communion. Um, and what well, is actually with Josh's sister. Um, and so, he, like, physically took communion. Well, that's not... So he was... No, but he's talking about in the pews. He's talking about... He was... She was She was someone that was a guest of someone who was a member, and the guests prevented them from doing it, right? I mean, that's me, right? Like, I, I don't let my kids go forward, so... That's one of the things I actually thought about, too, right? Like, even within my own family. Like, yeah. And even some of my kids, I'm like, probably just, like, known that yet, but just because I don't want it to be uh, taken away. Yeah. yeah. Right. That's my conviction, too. What if you're talking about if somebody's on church discipline, they're not allowed to commute? That's often the case, yeah. Now, why is that? Because they haven't repented yet. The Bible says so? Yeah. Once they repent, then discipline is over. The discipline's point is to encourage repentance and reconciliation. And so, well, they say it. They repent. They do it. So they come say, okay, I'm sorry I did this, yada, 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 yada. If it's effectual, right? Yeah. Okay. You're off church discipline? Yeah. It only, you only, people only know about it when it gets to, you know, the fourth step and it's announced to the church. It gets announced to the church? You, you've been around for that, yeah. What you, you know that. John, you had? I've yeah. never heard anybody you know, about this, but I've just heard about it after. <laughs> so, for, so here, for example, we announced a, a, a number of names at a recent... Uh, You're going to right? Huh? That for you to be praying for and encouraging to come back, and so if they were to come back, we would talk to them hopefully and like what's what's ha- what's happened. But so, anyways, you John in the office and talk to them or talk to them publicly. Privately, yeah. But you oh, announced everybody. You said, uh, uh, Bye. Yeah, yeah. Because that was uh, that was important because I think a lot of times when see you later when the. Um, I remember when I first heard you guys say, uh, you know, look to your baptism. I mean, I knew the context because I asked you, right? Yeah, yeah. But I think... Um, or remember your baptism, remember right? Remember your baptism, yeah. right? I think um, a lot of people, 
especially come out of the background like Christine does when she has these questions, obviously. The more you ask, the more you understand, the more that old stuff that's like that draws me refined, right? Um, but that was that was helpful. And then uh, the man center part, I really enjoyed that um, earlier about getting rid of the man center gospel. It has to be, you know, there's to be sin, there's to be judgment. You know, can't just be Jesus loves you. I remember when I was Armenian, Steve used to always be like, that's not the gospel, right? And so it's like people need to hear that. I mean, we've got people in our church who still have those uh, things they hold on to. Those things are rough. The one thing I was going to ask, just from an apologetic standpoint, when um, you brought up the baptismal regeneration, yeah. you go to Luke, uh, Mark 15, 16, 16, mm -hmm. he believes and he's baptized and he's saved. So for our baptismal regeneration, opposition, heretics, how would you engage him on that text and say, well, no, that's not talking about it? Because it believes precedes it, right? So, yeah. Because again, because again, it's baptism. Again, if, if you believe, again, as you said, teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. Well, if you what, what do we really believe? You know, do we believe we believe Christ? And so Christ has said to do these things, so we do them. But it's not that's not the what I say. It's not the instrumental cause. Baptism is the instrumental cause. That's God is the is the instrumental cause of our justification and salvation. Right. Yeah, I had a buddy who for years held on to baptism. Or God is the effective cause. I'm sorry. God is the effective cause. Faith is the instrumental cause. Yeah. And baptism is not the instrumental cause. Or faith is, but God is the effective cause. So right. baptism comes after belief. Faith is associated with belief. It's the glory of his grace, right? Amen. Amen. Yeah. Um, I had a buddy who uh, for years, when I was with his brother, well, before he was a brother, he really was big on that text and say whoever believes and is baptized is saved and you only be the one you're not saved and I was like brother don't you read that text a little further man you grew up in church you fell into this Christ you know church of Christ heresy yeah and uh, I said what does the rest of the text say it says but whoever does not believe is condemned yeah. I said why doesn't it say whoever is not baptized is condemned and the Lord used that to bring him out. And this dude is like, like reformed to the hilt now, right? And so, and coming out of that, you're seeing how, you know, how powerful people are. If you do this, you are saved. If you do this, you are saved. That's where I get confused. Yeah, so, so Christine's saying she's confused still so, because it has these two things. The, the, the point to remember is that there's an order. So there's belief is precedes it. Even the word is primary. When I said her, I was quoting Gerhardus Voss, that... If you take the word out of the sacrament, well, then the sacrament is meaningless. There's nothing, right? But if you take the sacrament and the word, well, you still have the word. And the word is still effectual. So the word is the, is the means of grace that leads to conversion. Not baptism and Lord's Supper. Those are things that come after. They're made effectual. They become effectual salvation because there's already that first work that's been done through the word of God, which regenerates us and saves us. So if, you, if that first work has been done, well, then ordinarily those other works are going to follow. These other means of grace will follow. Uh -huh. Ordinarily. Yeah. And, and I think so you have the first one, to... then you do the next one. Yeah. 
ordinarily. I think the very important part to remember is that Christ saves us, right? That's why, like, I, I know also friends that were in the Church of Christ, and, you know, they look at a lot of those texts, like the believe and be baptized. And even when you explain, well, look at what it says, if believe and baptize, you'll be saved, but if you don't believe, then you're condemned, right? And it, and it doesn't mention baptism. But that doesn't mean a whole. I can see how it can be a little confusing to them. Even I, I believe, if I'm if I'm not mistaken, doesn't even um, Paul say to the Philippian jail. He said, "What must I do?" He said, "Yeah, and, and be baptized time, yeah. Right? for the for, for the forgiveness of your sins." Yeah, yeah. But Paul and, also said, "I did not come to baptize." So. Well, yeah, yeah but that, that was later though, right? Yeah. So they used those passages, and I can understand the confusion. But I think the part that they're missing is that our salvation is in Christ alone. Amen. Right. I mean, we have to remember that that was that's that's one of the the five souls, right? It's yeah. Christ alone. Well, that that's what was one of the inferences I was trying to make too. Remember, don't don't look to the sacrament. Look to what the sacrament signify, which is look to Christ. And so, even the First Peter three twenty one, baptism now saves you. That's a big selling block. I mean, I know Lutherans like park there and they, yes. they camp there especially Lutherans but it, it's not pointing them to the actual sacrament of baptism but it's pointing them to why there was a baptism in the first place what Christ yeah. has done so. I think it goes back to Sunday school and I felt like when Ross asked me to step up there and teach I was like asking people after like, did that happen because he had a phone call from his son is yeah, that what yeah. okay I was confused but afterwards I was just like man did I say this stuff wrong like I was like people were like oh man you know I mean Back to what Job said, or what the Lord said to Job when he, when he spoke in that whirlwind, like, who is this who darkens understanding, right? It's like some of these texts are there, you know, not for by mistake. People people believe heresy because it's by the hand of God, it's a judgment. Absolutely. Yeah. You know? All things happen according to the counsel of his will, right? So. That's right. You guys want to wrap it up? I know we got started late, but let's pray. Okay. God, you are holy and good, and we do thank you for letting us gather tonight. And we pray, Lord, that you would give us a greater appreciation for the means of grace, that we would be excited, um, especially when we get to see another saint be baptized, and when we, when we get to come to the Lord's table uh, to remember that it is participation in the blood of Christ that was shed and his body that was broken. And we ask, Lord, that you would through the spirit that you have given to us, grow us through these things. We know that they're not just mere outward signs happening, but that you are working through these things spiritually to sanctify us and to grow us, and that you do that through prayer and through the preaching and the reading of your word also. So please, Lord, we just ask that you would be faithful to the means that you have ordained and that you would be pleased in seeing us uh, to be all the more conformed to Christ. We need you for it, and we pray that you would do it for your glory's sake. And in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.